You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. So back on June 27th of this year, I received the following email. Quote, I enjoyed your podcast number 168, Read the Hollow Nickel Case. Since I was a crypt analyst at the FBI who actually worked on the code, I have some information that may be of interest to you. Incidentally, I was in charge of the team that read the message. The Bureau would not let me testify at Abel's trial since I knew too much about the cryptanalysis section. So I taught Agent Leonard how to decrypt the code so he could testify. Get in touch if you're interested. Yes, I am old enough, 93, to have worked on it. And you know exactly what I did. I immediately replied to Marvin Lautzenheiser. And I must tell you what this man has accomplished in his lifetime. It's truly amazing. And since that first set of messages, we've been going back and forth and we recorded approximately eight hours of conversation over five different days. And I have to tell you the story that he had to tell was simply fascinating. He went from being a machinist in Ohio to standing in FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's Washington office in less than a year. As for background, Marvin was not only an FBI special agent, but he obtained a BA in mathematics from Mount Union College in Ohio back in 1953. He has five patents to his name. He's a member of Mensa, the American Iris Society, and he's also a member of the American Theater Organ Society. And wait till you hear our discussion about his theater organ. It's just incredible. Now, I'm not going to play it all for you today. I'm planning on probably three or four episodes to edit it into different sections. Now, in this first installment, Marvin discusses his early life growing up on a farm in Ohio during the Great Depression and World War II, his struggles to attend college while working a full-time job and raising three young children, and how a chance meeting while standing in line at his college graduation got him an interview with the FBI and his dream job as a cryptanalyst. I really think you're going to enjoy this. So sit back and let's listen to the first episode of The Cryptanalyst. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. Now, before I start, I should mention that Marvin used the phone to talk to me, so it's not the best of microphones. You'll hear some heavy breathing, some pops, clicks, and so on. Basically, the sound quality is low, and I did my best to tweak it that I, you know, that I could, but I'm not a great sound editor. But what you will hear is that while time has diminished the strength of his voice, his mind is still incredibly sharp. I was quite amazed at how he could just pull dates out of thin air. And as I mentioned in the introduction, there are over eight hours of recordings here. So what I've done is tried to condense it down. 
And in doing so, I took out large sections. You may hear uh, some jumps here and there. Um, but I tried to keep the story as intact as possible. I should also mention I turned my audio track off at times because you don't need to hear me go, mm-hmm, yep, whatever. Uh, so I've turned that off just so he can tell the story. I thought it was more interesting that way. And as he changes from one topic to another, since there are some major edits in here, occasionally I will jump in with a bit of narration uh, and you'll hear a beep that goes like this. Okay, so let's get to it. So let me introduce to you Marvin Lautenheiser. I was born in Maximo, Ohio. It's a little bird close to Alliance, not too far from Canton, Ohio. And uh, what year was that? 1929. Mm -hmm. I didn't cause the depression, but I was sure born into it. And uh, our house burned down when I was not just a couple weeks short of my fourth birthday, middle of the night. My wife, my mother heard the train, which ran about 150 yards behind our house. It had stopped there at 3 in the morning, and it just kept tooting its horn. My mother wakened up and saw flames coming up beside her bedroom window. We all got out, and uh, that was January 29th. This is what, in 19... In 1933. Mm -hmm. And uh, from then, we went... Well, we hopped to my grandfather's place for a few weeks and then to my mother's uh, father, who was dying of cancer, at, and that was in Louisville, Ohio. Uh, I, a couple of years later, I was about five years old, they bought a small farm, 40 acres near Homeworth, Ohio, another little bird you've never heard of. <laughs> and uh, I went to school there. I, I was about a mile and a half walk. Uh, East Way, and uh, I was in the middle of sixth grade in uh, 1940. Mm -hmm. And uh, in between there, of course, is depression years, and my father did everything he could to keep food on the table. He did a pretty good job of it. He did everything from raising mushrooms to sell to to uh, trying to raise frogs for frog legs to sell. Wow. Which didn't work out, but the mushrooms did work out for a while. Uh, let me ask you a question. Um, uh, before the Great Depression hit, was he was he a farmer before the Depression, or was did he just get into that after? Um, no, he was a, a stationary steam engineer. He had taught himself the the whole thing and passed the tests in Ohio, and he had his license, so he was a stationary steam engineer at the, the Alliance Machine Company. Uh, the Alliance uh, Electric Power Company. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was working there, and he had a pretty good job. The Depression came along, and they shut that whole electric facility down, and they were just importing electricity from another city. And so uh, he ended up, this was right after the Depression, I guess about 1934, 1935. Mm-hmm. And so he lost his job as one of the engineers there, but he was kept on as the guard. He guarded the plant at night because uh, people were scrounging for everything, and they would have come in and just stolen anything that should have been stolen. Right. So he told me about having to shoot into the air one time because of some people, some young man, presumably, trying to break in. Uh, I went to work with him a few times, and I'd sleep in what they called the rag box, 
where they kept rags that were waiting to be used for wiping down oil and things. Mm-hmm. This was when I was five years old. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Stayed all night with him. And uh, then uh, when my my mother's father died, we had moved in there, and I think she inherited the house, and I think that's where the money may have come from to buy the farm. And what age was that? Uh, five. Five, okay. I, I think he died, he died when I was four uh, in the late summer. And then in the early spring of 1935, I remember going there while they were putting up a silo on the farm before we moved in. Now, did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I, I was the youngest of quite a big family. Uh, the next older was Donald. He was six years older than me. The next older was Lawrence. He was three years older than Donald. And then Leila, my sister, was three years older than him, and Russell was three years older than him, than her. Wow. So it went right up the line. And then my mother had a, a child before that, and uh, that was a half-sister. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the whole history right there. So basically you stayed there uh, all through high school, is that correct? Uh, no, we stayed at Homeworth until the uh, February 1st of 1940. Mm-hmm. And we moved to a big farm, 247 acres. Uh, and a lot of it was swamp, a lot of it was woods. It was kind of like a, a boys' camp, but we lived there. One of the nice, not-so-nice things is we had no electricity. Mm-hmm. And the, the, they didn't have the money to, to get the electricity brought to the house. It was a, oh, half a mile away at least, maybe three quarters, the nearest place to hook up. So we didn't have any running water. We didn't have electricity because we were on a farm way out in the country. Our nearest neighbor was about a half mile away. So it was good and it was bad. There was no heat in the house. We put a furnace in. They had just stoves in there, a couple of the rooms before. And we lived with that for, I guess, about a year. Dad got a furnace and put in run pipes to all the rooms. It didn't matter. My bedroom, which was really, shouldn't have been a bedroom, but there was... The way the house was built, there was an extra, quote, living room. I slept in that, and my parents slept in the room next to it. There was still another living room and a a dining room in the house, and then the kitchen hung on the side of the house. So we had a stove in the kitchen. We had a stove in the dining room and uh, no other heat. The snow would come through the windows. They weren't sealed very well, and I'd I'd see a snowdrift an inch or two high on the windows when I'd get up in the morning. Wow. Uh, the nearest plumbing was the outhouse, which is about 50 or 60 feet away. I, I broke the uh, Olympic records going out to that and back in the middle of a cold night. <laughs> so, uh, it, it reminds me, uh, when I was growing up, my parents bought this 200-year-old house in the Catskill Mountains, and it had two three-seater outhouses. It was a men's and a women's outhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ours was two-seaters, and sometimes we shared yeah. That was the way life was. Anyway, uh, we had a farm all tractor. It would never start. When the Ford tractors came along with the hydraulic lift, my dad was one of the first to buy that, traded in the farm all. And my mother was dead set. Well, I might as well say my mother never agreed with dad on anything. <laughs> uh, I make the joke that... Uh, one day, my mother said I was a wit, and Dad said she's at least half right. <laughs> so 
anyway, that's the way it was. And she was really a, a difficult woman for him. She was wonderful to me. I was I was torn between her favors to me and my dad's common sense. I, I never could figure out what to do. And, uh, well, at one time in 1942, she took him to court. She wanted a divorce. And uh, she didn't really want a divorce. She just wanted to be mean. So we, I moved to in with my brother's place, Donald, and Dad moved into my Russell's place, and my mother lived with Leela, <laughs> and the house, the farm was empty. <laughs> even, the, even the cows and stuff were taken over to my uh, brother's place. Wow. And I, I, I thought I wasn't going to get registered for high school, but a, about a week before, they got back together, and my mother took, down, took me down to Minerva, where I was going to go to high school, and got me signed up. So let me set up the next part of this conversation. You're going to hear Marvin talk a little bit about the school he went to before high school. You know what we call elementary and uh, junior or middle school today. Anyway, listen carefully to how a spelling bee would play a very big part in his life. Let's get back to the story. When I first moved there, it was cold, the snow on the ground, and the way to school, you went down and stood at the end of the lane, and the, the uh, bus driver would just stop and pick you up. He didn't have to. He didn't have to know you were going to be there. He just did. If you were standing there, he picked you up and took you out to a two-room school. The the lower place was for the uh, one through four, and uh, five through eight were in the upper side. Mm-hmm. There was no plumbing, no electricity, because it was out in the field, just like our house was at home. And we had a, a boys' place and a woman's, a girls' place outside. <laughs> So uh, we would get there. The dust would pick us up on the way to taking the high school kids to Minerva. So we got to school about 7.30 in the morning. The teacher didn't show up till about 8. But that was all right. Some of the older boys knew about it, and they went in and started a fire in the lower and a fire in the upper little pot belly stove. And we just sat there and waited for the teacher. He had come maybe sometimes early, sometimes late. And the school wasn't supposed to start till 9. But when he got there in really dark days, we would just gather around the stove, and he would give us spelling questions, uh, geography questions, history questions, and see who could answer the quickest and the most of them. And that's the way I learned a lot about things. Mm-hmm. And a little interesting fact, I think, is in the seventh grade, uh, I was the best speller in our so we we went to the county had a get together for certain ones of the schools and I went there and all the rest in the seventh grade had been spelled down except two we it was a, they gave you a word and you wrote it down and a girl was even even with me we always had identical stored up through five spelling lists and then in the sixth one uh, she got one more word right than I did <laughs> and now fast forward. I'm in my junior year, of, between junior and senior years in high school. I'm in 4-H. I go to a 4-H camp. And when I, one of the uh, the first or second evening there, we were gathered close to the campfire, and this girl said, I know you. And it was the girl that had beaten me in the spelling bee, <laughs> if you want to know coincidences. Anyway, that will fast forward further. We got married uh, and, nine, and uh, a few years later. Wow. So, and unfortunately, that ended in divorce 30 years later. 
Uh, so let me ask you, you didn't go to high school with her, though. You just were in the spelling bee with her? No, she went to a different high school than I did. But we, because of that chance meeting when we got home, I asked for her phone number, I called her, and we started dating. And uh, we all through high school, we dated even though we were not in the same school. What was dating like back then, I mean, compared to today? Well, uh, a date was, I went and picked her up, we went to a movie, and I took her home. We had, sometimes we had a nice parking visit in, in between. She had an absolute maximum time to be home by midnight or else. And she just was uh, traumatized by the fact she might not get home. So we'd end up in her lane, her father's lane. Mm-hmm. And we would visit there a little bit. And then at about 20 minutes to a minute, she would race the uh, 40 feet from the car to the house to get in. She told me about her father, and so she was terrified of him. Of him. But she just hated him, and he hated me until I became an FBI agent, and then he was so proud of me that he, he could hardly keep it in. <laughs> so he had to tell everybody about that son. But there's a lot happened in between high school and that. When you need to work quickly and confidently, you need Grammarly. It's a trusted AI writing partner that helps you get work done faster with better writing. And it works where you work, across 500,000 apps and websites. 96% of users agree Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing. Get AI writing support that works where you work. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Now, at this point, we discuss a bit about his various activities in high school and what he planned to do after graduation. And this led into a short discussion about a girl who was in blackface and his dad's attitude towards minorities back then. Now, as you listen, just keep in mind, this is the late 1930s into the mid-1940s. So uh, I have to tell you, uh, I was on Ancestry.com and I found your high school yearbook. Oh, you did? Yeah, so, so I'm going to tell you what I read, and I, I assume, I mean, it, it had to be you. Uh, you wanted to be a teletrician, which I had never heard of before, so I had to look it up. That's a, that's a radio telephone technician, is that correct? It was radio t- uh, TV. Oh, TV. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I knew a person who repaired them, and I was so taken in by what he did and all the parts laying around and everything that I thought, gee, I'd like to be this. And there was a correspondence course that I got to take on that, and they told you teletricians, and that's where I picked it up. It was just a made-up word, made-up word. Mm-hmm. But it, I stuck with it, and that's what I thought I was going to try to do. It didn't work out at all. Well, it actually worked out better for you. So here are some other things. You were in National Honor, National Honor Society. Yeah. There were 11 members, of which two were boys. You were one of them. Uh-huh. I did a quick count because, you, you know, there's so many kids per page. There were about 98 students in your graduating class, and only 11 were in Honor Society, and you were one of the two boys. Yes. Actually, the number of graduating, I think it was 101, because a few of the GIs joined our class in the senior year, mm-hmm. and they didn't get in the book because they – that came in too soon to get their stuff in. Right. There was some sort of addendum at the end saying something to that effect. Yeah. 
Go ahead. Okay, so it also said you were associate editor of The Crescent, which I assume is a yearbook. Yeah, that was the yearbook. You were assistant editor of The Diary, which I think was the school newspaper? Yes. Uh, you were also in the junior and senior play. Yeah. And I also found your junior yearbook. You were in a play called Brother Goose, and you played a truck driver. Yes. What I found most interesting about this, and there's no way this could happen today, there was a girl named Hazel Walter, and she played, uh, quote, Sarah, a colored maid, and she was in blackface in the photo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely wouldn't, uh, you could never, I mean, that, that's very unacceptable today, you know. Yes. And we didn't think much of it. My father, uh, he worked, during the war, he worked in a, a plant where they built uh, some parts of the rockets, and uh, he did the uh, stationary engineering to keep the place warm, keep the steam up, and so on. And uh, he worked with a black man. And the black man, I don't know the arrangement, but a lot of times the black man would just come home with, with him, and he'd get breakfast, go to sleep a while in our spare bedroom, and then go out and work. Well, sometimes he'd go out and work in the barn first, and then he'd sleep, and then he'd wake up and get some lunch. We called it uh, dinner. Supper was the big meal of the day later. And then he'd uh, go out and he'd work in the field with him. He was a wonderful person. I thought, I hope I can be as nice as he is when I grow up. So do you think you succeeded? I don't know if I worked him that, but uh, my memory of him is not that good either, so... Maybe I came close, but I tried. But it was kind of my goal. Wow. We were in high school. We had a couple of uh, black girls in the school. I don't think they were as accepted as I had hoped they would be, but they were nice. They went to our classes and so on, no problems. So anyway, I, I, Dad always said uh, everybody bleeds the same color, and that was his byword. Uh, if anybody mentions something about Jews or blacks or anything, he said, well, everybody bleeds the same color. So I got that in me, and I just believed it my whole life. I've never had a, any feelings other than he did. Now, at this point, the conversation transitions into what happened after high school. What year did you graduate high school? Well, 1946. How long after that did you get married? Gene and I wanted to get married for sure, but we had raised that either, if either one of us could go to college, we would not get married until afterwards. But Dad had always talked about college for me until it came time, and he simply didn't have any money. It was, I think it was $200 a year, and I didn't have any money. So in October, college had already started. We were not in it. So we got married. My Jane really wanted to get married sooner, but we just got married and uh, I moved out. We she had found an apartment of two rooms for eight dollars a week, <laughs> and she had found a job with a jeweler, a store where they uh, sold jewelry. She was worked in the office and uh, sometimes as a clerk. So she was making eighteen dollars and something for a six-day week. And I was making 37 something for a five and a half day week together. We actually had quite a bit of money for those days. A lot of people were living on 35 or 40 total for the week. So we moved into our little apartment. Oh, the interesting thing in between there is when I got out of high school, Dad had had a, a Ford coupe and he had wrecked the door. So 
he sold the engine and transmission out of it to a local garage. And he had always promised me I would get the car, but uh, lo and behold, the engine was gone. And my brother had taken the differential, and the seats were rotted out. They were sitting there open, and the door was crumpled. And I asked, should I have that? Well, I built a car out of that. And I was I worked on it every day, every payday. I would take all the money I could to buy something else for it. I'd go around to the junkyards and look for the parts. And I'd buy, I got the uh, differential back from my brother. He hadn't used it anyway. He wanted it for some of those weird projects. And so I had the stuff except I needed a motor, and I found an engine and found a transmission, got them all put together. I, I took the engine apart and re-ringed it and re-ground the valves and put it back together, got the transmission, bought the parts, and I found seats from a, from a 36 coupe. I had no wall between the seats and the trunk, but that didn't matter. And I, I had to rewire because all the wiring was gone. Anyway, I built a car that ran, and I used it for a while, and it was it was a good car. <laughs> In those days, as soon as I got it built, I was offered more money than you could believe for it because there were no cars. They hadn't built any since 1940, uh, 1941. Yeah, because of the war. Yep. And if you wanted to buy a new car... You went into the dealer and you said, I'd like to buy a car like this. And they say, okay, put your name on this list. And six months, eight months, or a year later, you would get to call your cars in. So all the used cars were precious. So anyway, our marriage depended both on college and did I get the car to work. So when those coincided, we got married. <laughs> wow. I, so I guess, uh, I mean, because we had spoken, uh, you know, a few weeks back and uh, you, you told me that you got a job in a machine shop and then you figured out how you could go to college uh, during that time. So why don't you explain that? Well, I, I got, there was a shop out in the country where a guy uh, built equipment for the pottery industry and he had patents on some of the most weird machines that were used for the pottery I don't know what you know about making dishes, but uh, they had to mix the mud in something. So they had the big mixer, a pug mill, they called it. If you knew about very, very old dishes, someone would have a blister in the bottom. And that was because they, there was air mixed in the mud when they put it into the mold. So this guy had a patent on a thing that would take that air out of the mud. It was called a de-airing mill. Other people had them, but they didn't work very well. His was the one that worked. The uh, the shaft down through it was only supported at one end. They accidentally melted, uh, welded that shaft in crooked, just a little bit. It was just a wobble. And I thought, well, we'll try it anyway. And he got a patent on that wobble because it worked. Anyway, he was a great inventor, but the weirdest guy but I got a job there. They decided that they could never find the parts. They'd order them, but they couldn't find them when they came in. They couldn't find the tools. They would set up a tool shop, a tool bin, and a, a parts area. They put fence around it so nobody could get in. They hired me for 70 cents an hour to sit in there and hand out the tools. Somebody changed it, and I'd sign them out, uh, sign out the drill or whatever, and then sign it back in that, so that they had to be clear at the end of the day. Well... That job was right outside the mesh fence was the machine shop portion. It had ladies and billing machines and so on in it. 
But I, I usually had enough spare time to watch the machinist out there running that lathe. And I went out and watched him sometimes. I'd just go out of the cage and wait and watch to see what he did. And one day he didn't come to work. They were desperate. we got to have this shaft. What are we going to do? And I said, I'll, I'll make it for you. They said, oh, okay, go ahead. I went out and I made the shaft for him. I never went back into the into the bin again. I was a machinist. So anyway, I got a lead on the shop in a, a super best shop in the area to work in, Alliance Machine Company. I got the chance to go in there, and I was working the second shift. By then, of course, I was married. I didn't tell you about the shack. We rented for, let's see, from 46 to 48. In 48, Jean was very uh, aggressive about getting us out of the renting, and she found a place, a house on three-quarters of an acre of land for $1,800. And she also knew a, a neighbor farmer of her father's who lent money to people, so at 6% interest, he loaned us $1,500, and we had come up with 300 from savings, and, and, and we bought the shack. No running water. It had electricity. It was really a shack built out of old crates and stuff. It was, uh, the guy who had lived there built that. He worked in a shop, and he took home all of the spare lumber, and he built a house out of it. So we moved in, had a fairly decent kitchen. The living room was uh, about nine feet wide and about ten feet long. It was a pretty nice room. The bedroom, there was only one really, was next to that. And then there was a little room that you could put a single bed in and you could have about a foot to walk in, crawl in beside it. Well, with children, we had a... a, a by the time I went to college, by the time we did that, we had our second baby. He was born uh, a few weeks before I went to college. And that's part of what it was about. He and my daughter, who I adored, and my wife and I were driving back past the college in Mount Union, Ohio, Alliance, Ohio. And I offhandedly said, I should take you, start taking some courses. I'm working from 2 to 10. I have my mornings for you. Maybe I could take some courses there. And next day, she said, get up and go to go up there and sign in. Wow. We hadn't even talked about it, but she just took that on her own. Get up there and go in. Get signed in. You don't need to go to work till one thirty. Just get up there and go. So I went in. I talked to the registrar. It turned out to be the last day I could sign in for that year. And, and uh, anyway, I, I told him about. It and I I said, uh, is there any way I could get some help on the tuition? And he says, well, if you're going full time, I could maybe get you a scholarship. But if you go part-time, we can't help you. And he says, besides, if you're working in a machine shop and you're working eight hours a day on hard work, there's no way you can go full-time, and you'd have to go full-time to get a scholarship. He says, I'll sign you up for two courses. So he did, a math course and an English composition. After my stuff in high school with the, uh, the newspaper and everything, composition was a snap for me. Trigonometry was just, I should do it, and no no work at all. It was just a lot of fun to do. So I went to those two courses, and I went in to sign up for some more courses. He says, uh, would you uh, consider going full-time? And I said, well, I, I, I have to work. He says, 
But if we arranged it that you would only have courses in the morning and one afternoon so you could still get out of school in time to go to work, would you try it? I, I said, if you think so. And he said, well, if you do that, I can give you, give you a 50% scholarship. Wow. Well, I signed up, but I had to go talk to my superintendent of the plant, the big boss over everybody, and I said, I need to get to work 15 minutes late. It was about three-mile drive from school. My class got out at 150, and I could not make it in 10 minutes. But in 25 minutes, I could go down and change clothes in the car and race in through the shop down to the uh, place where you punched in. And he said, you can try it. He said, I'll give you. So you come in at 2.15, and you you leave at 10.15. So everybody clicked together, and here I was signed up for four, uh, four courses, the whole thing. In the four years you're in college, did that ever become a problem? Were you like ever really late or anything? Or I was never late, but let me tell you, uh, by oh my senior year I had to work night shifts because I had afternoon classes I hadn't been able to take all through the year. Sure. And I had some classes in the morning, some in the afternoon, and go to shift, work at midnight, uh, at ten at night, and then try to sleep two hours, go to school two hours. I swore I was going to die every. I was going to quit. My wife said, "You can't quit now. You're so close." And I counted off the days. By the last semester, I really felt I'd rather die than go into a stool or work again. But anyway, I did, and it was four years. It's not describable. The first year was tough. The second year was nearly impossible. The third year, I didn't know how I was going to handle it. And my senior year, I just was, I was just surviving. But I still got magna cum laude. That's amazing. So I was juggling full time at work. I was juggling a family, and I was juggling school. It, it was terrible. I, I had no, I had no life. And I mean, how'd your wife feel about this? I mean, she probably had to assume a lot of the responsibilities that you couldn't do. Oh, she was. I don't dare say this in front of my current wife, but she was so wonderful. It's unbelievable. She took care of everything. When uh, I didn't have the money sometimes to finish out the tuition, she would go in and arrange for a $30 loan. And she did that twice. I just said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't take the exams. I don't have $30. So she went in and, and made arrangements. She did everything she had to do. Because what should I do? I was I would sleep a little bit. When I came home from work at ten, ten fifteen, ten thirty, I'd get home. And go, I would eat a, a sandwich or something, and then we had a table I used for a desk, and I would go there and I'd start studying. About three or four in the morning, if I wakened up, I'd go to bed and I had to get up at seven. But a lot of times I didn't wake up. She would come out and tap me on the shoulder. I'd have my head laying down on the table at 4 or 5 in the morning, and it was too late to go to stool, or to go to bed, and I had to go to stool. I know it sounds like bragging, but I don't know how I lived through it. <laughs> well, you made it through, and uh, it changed your life forever. Everything got changed because of that. I was in line to graduate, and I had already lined up an offer from a rubber company, which is one of the main industries around there, to go into their laboratory as a starter and something or other. 
And the, the girl in front of me was also a math student, and she said, did the FBI get in touch with you? I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, they were coming around looking for the best math students. They're doing this all over the country. They're looking for 30 good math students to take in for cryptanalysis training. Well, I, I said, I never heard of it. She said, well, why don't you give the uh, Cleveland office a call and see what's going on? So I did after a graduation. And uh, lo and behold, they said, come on up to Cleveland for an interview. They were impressed with my my math grades. I had all A's but one B. And uh, I went up and talked to them, and they said, well, here, we'll fill in this application, and uh, you go home, and we'll, we'll be in touch. So she was a math major also, right? The other, the girl in front of me? Yeah, so, so why? Yeah, that's how she knew that I would be. She, they wouldn't take girls. Ah, but uh, she knew about this because they, uh, I don't know, came into the class. I don't know how they got in touch with her, but, but anyway, she said they were looking for the math, for excellent math students. She, that's the way she put it, because they didn't want anything but the very best. And out of the whole country, they took 30 people. And did you know anything about cryptanalysis at the time, or is just you were just a math major? No, but it was a nice hobby. I, I love to do the little codes that were in, in magazines and things. So I thought I'm going to be paid for doing what I like to do. And I was higher than a kite. After a couple of months, after I called the, uh, the FBI office in Cleveland, because it had gone about four or five weeks. So I told them, I said, oh, the investigation's all done of your background, and we're just waiting for the letter with the offer to come to you in, in a couple of days. So I got the offer, and I, and the 1st of August, I packed up my car. My wife was all enthused about it. She stayed back there living in the shack. Well, I drove to Washington. She had three children by then. And what year was this? Uh, that was 19... Uh, 53. Graduation was in June and it was late August. I know middle August when I went down to Washington. So she was back there in a, a shack with, with uh, by this time I'd put in running water incidentally. And that was a godsend. But anyway, she had not much else. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Unfortunately, at this point, we lost our connection, so I had to call back, and then Marvin continued where he left off. The chance to work at the FBI, even though I wasn't an agent, was still so great. 
that we were both so enthused we couldn't, we couldn't believe it. I would get to work at breaking code, my favorite Toha pastime. Get paid for it, and I'd be working for the FBI. Anyway, she was all enthused. I packed up enough clothing for a week, or I figured I'd go home and get those. It's 350-mile drive back then. It's, it's shorter now with all the good roads. So I said I'll come home on Monday, uh, Friday night, and come get more clothes and things. And so she took me back down that time. Uh, my mother took care of the children for the weekend. So my wife came down with me, took the car home, and uh, after a couple of weeks, she came down and started looking for a house. She was trying to sell her house in in Ohio, and uh, she was looking for a uh, came down looking for a house in uh, I was in September by then, and she found the house I'm in right now. She went home and we sold the house up there in a funny way. We got a thousand dollars down. And it was $2,900 on what they called a land contract, where they moved in and they acted like they owned the house, uh, and they paid on it every uh, so often. And when it all got paid, then they would get title to the house. She came down a few days before the 1st of October, and we had already signed the house up a week before that, or two weeks. And she came down with the kids, and we went into the empty house, the owner... He was in danger of losing the house on a land on a construction loan. He was about to lose it. He wanted seventeen thousand five, and we got it for thirteen five. And he let us stay in the house for the first two days before the paper was official. So we came in. We had blankets and stuff to lie on the floor, and we had some furniture we had hauled down. The rest of it hadn't arrived yet. So anyway. That's how we got this house. So anyway, I got here, and the course was supposed to... I started in October. No, I started in August, and I was supposed to uh, be uh, done with the course in about a year, which would have been October. I was done in April. They had promised that I would get a two-grade raise from 7 to 9, from up that 40... I took I cut from 4,800 as a machine shop to 4,200 here. So when you were a machinist, you were basically earning around $53,000 in today's money. Okay. And when you switched to the FBI, you were earning about $44,000. Okay, that's, that's, uh-huh. But they promised I'd go back up in uh, a year after I got my grade nine. They never had, had anybody finish in less than a year, so it wasn't a problem for them. There's a federal rule that you can't get a two-grade raise like that in less than one year. And here I am in April saying, where's my raise? And so the, uh, the boss, Downing, who I, I have so much to say about him later, as you know, uh, went to bat for me, and he got it in June, which was a couple months late, but it was still several months early. That was very good of him to do that. My question to you would be, what was it? I mean, you you went through this faster than most people. I mean, were you sitting in classrooms, or were you... Uh, working through like a program, or how, how how did you get through it faster than everybody else? Oh, we were on our own. We were assigned a mentor who was in charge. He would give us a a new type of code to study and figure out, and then he'd give you one to break or couple. And if you broke those, then you went on to the next step. Each one was on his own of his own speed. By this time, the class had weeded down. 
from the, with a large number of the team, we were down to about 10 very shortly, 12, 15, 14 maybe. Not surprisingly, Marvin was not allowed to breathe a word of what he was up to to anyone, and that included his wife. And in this next section, he briefly mentioned Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where he did his FBI field training, which was required before becoming a cryptanalyst. So, uh, I mean, I assume your wife knew you were doing this. <laughs> uh, she knew it because I had told her that's what I was being uh, picked up for, I had been hired for. But I never breathed the word cryptanalysis again after that tour. I did not tell her anything I did as long as I was in the lab. When I got to Charlotte, I could tell her a little bit, but I had to be careful what I said. So I would tell her I would get calls at 10 or 11 or midnight to go out. And I didn't tell her. I just said I have to go out on a chase. But that was Charlotte. It was the best time of my FBI career. Shortly after completing his cryptanalysis coursework, Marvin applied to be an FBI agent. And I was really surprised by this, but one of the requirements was that you needed to lead tours around the FBI facility. I, I guess I should pick up real quickly. Right after, in, I finished in April, and I was doing cryptanalysis work. And I, for some reason, they needed agents. And they said anybody with a degree who's already working here, it doesn't have to be the law degree, mine was mathematics, can apply. That didn't say you were going to make it because it was a rocky road from there. They had three or four things you had to get through. One of them was tour training. Now, the, the kid from Ohio on the farm was not ready to lead tours around the FBI, especially since it was impressed on you that when you lead a tour, you are the face of the FBI, and people will go home and tell their friends about the FBI based on what you say and how you behave. But every Tuesday, I would go down and wait in the waiting room with a half a dozen others who we took turns. They tried to limit us to three tours a day because on the fourth tour, you can't remember what you told, what story you told. It was about Dillinger or it was about somebody, this, that. So the forest tour was always very difficult, but once in a while we were forced to do that. And we'd, uh, we met the people, and uh, they said who we were, and that I'd be with them for the next hour, and uh, welcome to the Bureau. And so the first day I went down there, and uh, I did it, and I enjoyed it. It was always a little uneasy to start with, but I got along, and I loosened up, and they were wonderful people. They were so anxious to hear about the FBI that I could have done anything. But uh, they were good people, and uh, after about three or four weeks of this, I got to notice to go for extra training because I'd been named the VIP uh, tour leader. And so I got extra training. The VIP tours got a little extra, and uh, you started at uh, Mr. Hoover's outer office, so people would go there if they were a senator or a judge or a high official in anything or just a friend of one of uh, Hoover's uh, cohorts. So anyway, I, I went out to train, and they said, now you'll just be on call when uh, Miss Dandy will call you. She was his secretary. And that will mean you go to his office, and there will be somebody waiting there and uh, you will take them on your special tour that you just finished training. 
Now, on these special tours, there weren't as many people. I assume it's just a couple of people, three, four people. Is that correct? It could be anywhere from two to five people. I think five was the highest group ever. Quite often, it would be a senator and his family, or a representative in his family, or a judge in his family. Uh, that was the kind of nature. We also had some high officials in some of the churches come in. With a, there would be two or three people. But anyway, it was fun. Uh, you got a little, little extra time. You got a, an extra room where you had special exhibits. And you got uh, front of the line when you get down to the basement where the firearms was. We had the firearms. You went in and you, you trotted around where one of the special marksmen put uh, five bullets right straight in the center spot of the uh, target. And then the target came back and you gave them the target. Big deal. <laughs> And then you went on. So that was the last thing in the tour. You took him back to Mr. Hoover's office. You took him back to the elevator. We would be in the basement. We'd get on the elevator, and we'd go by past the first floor where you worried that Hoover would be waiting to get on. And then you went up to the, uh, I think it was fifth or sixth floor where his office was. He went in, turned him over to Miss Gandy, thanked him for their visit, and you went back to your office. Now, I have to ask, at this point, did you meet Hoover, or you just would go and meet his secretary? Had you ever met him at that point? No, I was so lucky because we had special training. What do you do if you meet Mr. Hoover along the way because you're using his private uh, uh, elevator? There's a good chance you'll meet him. And so we had special things of how you introduced him and you introduced your group and said what a, something like how great it was to work with him. You had something nice to say, but you had already had to be prepared because it was very likely you would meet him. But I was I was lucky. I never did. I did have the occasion that something happened afterwards, but we'll get to that later. Of course, becoming an FBI agent required far more than just giving tours to visitors and VIPs. Marvin needed to pass a law exam. Now, keep in mind, his major in college was mathematics, not law. And he had a funny story to tell about that exam. Let's listen. Uh, I did get a break on a, on the law test. I went over to the man's office where I was supposed to take the law test. It was done individually for the ones that had made it this far. I went in and I said, I, he said, just have a seat. I thought, well, he knows who it is. I'm right on time. He knows who I am. Right after that, a man, a maintenance man, I guess, brought in a his chair, he had. He was using a temporary chair while his was being repaired. And so they took the other one out and they took his new chair around to the back of the desk. I just sat there and watched. And he sat down, he got up and he fumbled with the chair, turned it over, put it back, fumbled with it. And about the third time, I said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I can't get this adjusted. So I went over and I looked at it and I adjusted it for him. He sat down, that's just right. And he says, why are you here? He had forgotten I was scheduled. And so he gave me a stack of books and uh, some papers with cases on them. And he said, take these in here, figure out which ones are cases that we have jurisdiction. And if you find out the points on which we uh, base our investigation and what the points of the law is that they violated. And he said, it's all in these books. And they were books about two inches thick, about three of them, I think. And so he said, you have three hours. 
uh, two hours later, I walked out with the paper and handed it to him. I said, I'm all done. And he says, did you finish? I said, yes, I'm done. And he, he said, okay, sit down. He looked through them. He was flipping through the papers. He, after a while, he looked out. He says, you can go now. It's supposed to be an oral test after the written one. I, I said, not the oral test. He said, oh, you passed. <laughs> so that was the easiest one I had. Marvin also had to spend 16 weeks at the FBI Training Academy, and here he talks about his first day on the firing range. There are a few things interesting happened. My dad, we had guns at home, but uh, he had a revolver, and, and we had a shotgun and a rifle, but I, I only ever fired a gun maybe five or six times in my whole life, and it was probably a twenty-two rifle that we had. So I wasn't prepared much for firing a gun. But uh, the first day, uh, we got 50 rounds, and we fired five. We reloaded, fired five more. Before we had a break, I already used up over 50. Uh, 50. I was in my second 50. <laughs> and uh, they were alphabetic. They had a tower where the, the trainers could stand up over and watch over what we were doing because they were concerned. These people, these men were firing guns, some of them like me, for the first time. All through the academy, we had carried a gun with us on our holster, but it had a firing pin removed. It had a red handle and the firing pin was out. But you carried it so you knew what it was going to feel like in the holster when you got the real one. And so uh, they just had drilled into us. You never point a gun at somebody unless you're going to intend to kill them. It was just exactly that way, and they just kept hammering that home. Then we got down there, I had the holster, and I had the real gun. So anyway, just before a break, they called out. We were lined up alphabetically, and the tower was at the middle. Lothenheiser came right at the middle, so I was straight under the tower. And after about, I don't know, 25, 40, 50 rounds, they said, Watson Heiser, are you looking at those sites like you were told? And I, I thought, my God, yes, I am. Yeah, I, I said, yes, sir. And he said, especially if you pay attention, that's the way it's supposed to be done. I was shrinking about to die, and and they were complimenting me. So we went through that whole day firing. I nearly had a blister on my trigger finger by the end of the day. But it was okay, and it was freezing cold. So we moved on. Uh, then we had to go on to the rifle range and the shotgun and the sub submachine gun. And uh, it was quite something. In our last segment for today, Marvin discusses a typical day while training at the Naval Academy at Quantico, uh, finding out where his field placement would be, and then his brief first but not last encounter with FBI Director Jagger Hoover. He got up at six, he got showered and cleaned up, you made your bed, and you were down at the dining hall by seven. You had your great breakfast, great meals all the time. I had more for breakfast if you wanted it than I would usually have for dinner. Anyway, uh, then you'd go to classes, and uh, you'd have classes for a couple of hours, then you'd go down to the gym for a defensive practice and make an arrest, how to do that how to handcuff, what it was like to be handcuffed. Well, just everything you can think of in that order. We had exercises for muscle building. 
it was a strenuous time. Then you went back for a couple of hours of classes, and you went to dinner. After dinner, you were free to study and uh, do anything you wanted to, but study was the only thing you could do. If you didn't study, there would be a test the next day on what was yesterday. You had no choice but to spend the evening testing, studying for them. And once in a while, uh, we'd have a little lighter one, and we'd get to play checkers or chess. But uh, usually by 9 o'clock, we wanted to be in bed. Uh, it was it was so tiring. Uh, when we got down to the uh, last day before we actually graduated, they told us each one, they whispered to each one in our ear where we were going. I was going to Charlotte. But the teachers were breaking the rule to let us know that a day ahead. And so they were sworn, if you make any fuss about that, you're out. So then we had the ceremony, and we went out to Hoover's office then after you had finished everything else. And you waited in this outer room. Then one at a time, you went back to his private office, and he would be standing up, and you'd shake hands, and you'd say how happy you were to be there in some trivial thing, and he'd congratulate you on getting through the academy, and uh, it would be great to have you as an agent, and uh, he thought you'd enjoy, in my case, Charlotte, and so on. And uh, so on, three, four, five minutes at the most, and you were out of there, and you were going home to uh, report to the academy on the, this would be a Friday, on Monday you reported to the academy. So, uh, anyway, that's pretty much the story, and then I I finished the academy in uh, March or April, and uh, I got my notice to go to Charlotte, which has a lot of wonderful stories, but we can't possibly cover them all. And that's probably a good place to end part one of my interview with Marvin. In the next segment, Marvin will tell a couple of those stories from Charlotte, and that includes making an arrest the first day he was actually out in the field on his own. What are the chances? Plus, we'll talk about how he ended up back at FBI headquarters as a cryptanalyst. And, of course, the reason I spoke to him in the first place, he'll talk about the hollow nickel case and how his team, after others had been unsuccessful, how his team finally cracked the code. And I should mention, while he has information about this case and many others that he'll carry to his grave, he does have details that nobody else knows uh, that he can add to the story. And I'll post that as soon as I finish editing it. And I have to tell you, it takes a long time to do so. This particular episode you're listening to right now took me about three and a half days to edit down. So uh, I need to get some exercise. I need to get moving around. I can't just keep sitting here. So figure one and a half to two weeks before I get that segment posted. In the meantime, if you have any comments about this episode, feel free to send me an email at steve at uselessinformation.org. You can also contact me through Facebook Messenger or you can use the contact form on my website, which is also uselessinformation.org. And if you have a message you'd like me to pass on to Marvin, I'd be happy to do so. Just send it my way, and I will pass it on to him. Anyway, stay tuned for part two of The Crypt Analyst. And if you're already subscribed to the podcast, you should get fairly instant notification of when it's available. Most of the services take 15 minutes to a half hour to update, but you will get fairly instant notification. Anyway, thanks for listening and take care, everyone. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.